radical left has taken over the Democratic Party. Hello and welcome to Think Progressively, covering politics and all the other chaos life has to offer. This is episode 71, recorded on Sunday, August 21st from Milwaukee. We're a little bit late, I apologize. I'm Joe. And I'm Jason. And on today's episode, we discuss one of the latest books labeled as Too Dangerous by conservative school boards. But first, the headlines. Up yours, woke moralists. We'll see who cancels who. So let's start our headlines off with the latest primary updates. We'll go to Wyoming to talk about Liz Cheney, the hero and democratic bastion of truth, <laughs> righteousness, and progressive values, Liz Cheney. Right. <laughs> LGBT freedom and equality. Sadly and unexpected. No, sorry. Sadly and expectedly. Well, Liz- also not sadly and expectedly. That's fine. <laughs> I will not shed any tears for Liz Cheney. Cheney lost to her Trump-endorsed challenger, Harriet Hageman, by almost 40 points in her Republican primary. And, okay, I don't, I know we try not to make things about looks, but who would vote for someone? She literally looks like you took a 10-year-old <laughs> and left them in a room full of makeup. And, like, what would come out? That's what Harriet Hageman looks like. It's ridiculous. It's like, I want to just laugh. Cause I think she, I think it's like a joke. Like, ha ha, I left the house like this this morning. You know what she looks like? You're funny. She looks like a congressman out of Wyoming. That's what she looks like. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tammy Faye Baker kind of esque. (laughs) Very like that. So Cheney immediately conceded, like, I think way before even the election was called, as soon as I think the first numbers came out. And she made, like, a big deal out of conceding, probably for obvious reasons. She recorded the phone call and everything. Right. So what would be next for Miss Cheney? I guess even before we go into that, what do you think this says about the state of the Republican Party right now? Now, granted, it was not surprising by any means. We already knew that. We also knew that she wasn't even really trying to win. And I, I thought for sure you were going to mention this, but you know that Harry Harriet Hageman has gone on record saying that Liz Cheney did not concede, did not call her to concede, <laughs> even though she actually recorded the phone call in which she did call. There is and so weird. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and Harriet Hageman actually Just provided lied. some like what she says is proof that she didn't. It's. <laughs> It's like a message from Liz Cheney that says hi, and then like the sound cuts out for a while. What? So it's unclear if like literally there were some kind of technical difficulties, or if literally they cut the sound out on purpose to be like, see, she didn't concede. But either way, I mean, someone doesn't just thing. call you and say hi, and then silence for ten seconds, and then hang up. Like there, you have to know there's more to it. But she just wants to support this crazy notion that oh, Liz. Liz Cheney is a hypocrite. She didn't call to concede. Which is she a did. weird hill to die on. Right. Like one who cares. No, she didn't graciously lose. <laughs> She's just lying to you that she graciously lost, even though she recorded everything. Right. That's such a weird conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Oh my and God. And I thought that's why you put that on here. No, I was, just <laughs> talk- I, was, I was talking more about the fact that she just, she made it a very clear point to concede immediately because she was trying to make a point about how we should always concede immediately after elections because elections are fair and whatever and all that fun 
fun stuff. But yeah, no, I had no idea that happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Well, that's even more insane than I thought. So, but anyway, so what does this tell us about the Republican Party right now? Because like I said, Liz Cheney didn't really try to win. She put out, I believe like one or two ads with her dad in them. I don't know if you saw that where, yeah. he, where he just- looked, The ghost of Dick Cheney. Yeah, he just looks like a decrepit old man. Oh my God. And he like straight up called Trump out in that too. Mm-hmm. But I think as of right now, I could be lying or not lying, but wrong. I think she's sitting around like $15 million in the bank or something like that. So she didn't spend like any of her money that she raised. So what does this even tell us? Well, she has said previously that she is considering a run for president in 2024. She is. And she actually made a slight little note about that. And also she, I think her was her spokesperson. What do I have here? I have a quote from her. Yeah. Her spokesperson here has said, in coming weeks, Liz will be launching an organization to educate the American people about the ongoing threat to our republic and to mobilize a unified effort to oppose any Donald Trump campaign for president. And then in a separate interview, she kind of hinted that she was considering running for president as not, it was not ruling it out for sure, Mm -hmm. which I... Who's going to vote for Liz Cheney? I don't know. Is it going to be like a weird martyr style campaign? I don't know. I don't It would have to be third party. And I don't think that's going to be productive. Well, what's even crazier is that, so I've been debating this for a while now where it's, okay, so if she was going to run again, should she run as like a libertarian candidate or should she run in the GOP primary knowing she's going to lose? Obviously, the GOP primary would give her more backing a little bit here and there. It could potentially get her more airtime, more traction. It, she would never win. But then there's also talk about how the RNC will just straight up not let her have any right. um, debate time on stage, even if she polls well enough. So I have no idea what's the best move for her. I don't know what she's thinking. I don't know what's going through her head at this moment, but geez. I mean, we're going to have the big fight between DeSantis and Trump, right? That's what we're all kind of preparing for. Yeah, but even then, it's like there's there are two Trumpy candidates. I think it'd be more interesting for the independent voter to have a non- Trumpy candidate in there as well, just to like be yelling just as much as Trump is. I'm sure there'll be people that we don't know about, but yeah, I don't think they will honestly let Liz Cheney run. I don't think so either. So that's why I have no idea what's going on. We'll see. We'll see what happens. And I don't think it would be productive for her to run third party. I I don't think so either. I think it has to be a GOP or nothing, but I, yeesh. Because I think if anything, she's going to siphon away those votes of people that just cannot bring themselves to vote for Trump. But they also hate Biden. Right. Like instead of voting for Biden or hopefully whoever else will be the Democratic nominee, they'll vote for Liz Cheney. And that that's not helpful. Right. She would be doing the exact opposite of what she says that she wants to do in that case. I agree. Also in Wyoming, there was the GOP primary for secretary of state, which was won by Chuck Gray, who defeated his opponent, Sarah Nethercott, by eight points. Now, Chuck has now become the sixth election denier nominated to secretary of state in the country when he called the 2020 election illegitimate. Now, does he mean illegitimate in Wyoming, which overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump? No, 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 no. It's it's Arizona (laughs) and Georgia, man. Yeah, this is one of those where I don't care who's the secretary of state. Make it the most extreme crazy person you want. Your one electoral college vote (laughs) is going to go for the Republican candidate no matter what, so it really doesn't matter. (laughs) Have fun. (laughs) (laughs) Then in the much more interesting race, Alaska had their primaries as well. Now, Alaska actually used this time to debut their ranked choice voting system. And unlike other states, Alaska does all party races with top candidates advancing to the general election in November. So 
we did have the senatorial campaign for Senate Lisa Murkowski's seat, where she technically won, or she at least led, her all-party Senate primary and will advance against her Trump-backed challenger. So it was the two people that we were expected. It was closer than I expected. From at least according to the numbers, Murkowski leads around 44% to 39%. Not much of a difference. And thanks to Alaska's mail-in voting initiatives, where actually lead up to a week after election day happens, we're not going to know for a while until we know what exactly is going to happen for this race, but it's expected to go Murkowski's way, so she'll actually go in and lead the polls, or lead the election until the general in November, so. At least Murkowski, the she was fairly moderate Republican senator from Alaska, Voted at least in Trump. theory. Yeah, she did vote to impeach Trump. She's like one of only two GOP candidates who voted to impeach Trump that are still left at this point, Yep, which that tells you all you need to know about the Republican Party. There is no tolerance for dissent. No, not at all. Dear leader Donald Trump. And they also had a special House election where they had simultaneously two separate elections for the same House seat to fill the vacancy of Representative Don Young, who passed away in March. Now, this is Alaska's only representative or congressional seat. Yeah, it was just weird. It was really weird seeing the special election that was going to fill out the term itself. But then they also had the primary, which was going <laughs> to take over. Time. Yeah, which yeah. was going to take over for Young after he, his term was finished. So you had basically the same candidates applying for both ballots and some did do that and some didn't do it like it was it was a very weird campaign strategy thing that i'm not going to go into but anyway democrat mary pelota leads both races by a slim margin if pelota is successful she will become alaska's first native woman elected to the house which is pretty crazy when you think of the composition of alaska exactly in second place by a very close margin we have trump endorsed candidate sarah palin she can see russia from her house <laughs> i can't believe that even people are still voting for her over there. I don't know. And then we have Nick Bedjic. Nick Bedjic? Bedjic? How do you pronounce his name? Bedjic? Nick is how you pronounce it. It's Nick. It's the guy who came in third. And then we don't know who came in fourth, but the fourth guy will go on to the general too, whatever. So the special election will be decided immediately, but with the delay in mail-in ballots and counting the ranked choice votes, we may not know who's going to win until August 31st. So as of right now, Polota looks like they'll probably be in first place, but we'll see actually who comes in between second or third in the special election because because whoever's in third will get nixed out and all their votes will go to their second choices, which right. depending on who gets nixed out may alter the election greatly. So we have no idea what's going to go on. So we'll let you know when we find out more about that. That is probably the one conceit with ranked choice voting is it does take some time to determine who wins. And you know what? I don't care. I do not care. But that's, I think of how much room there is for people to declare that there's Oh yeah. The conspiracies fraud. are going yeah. crazy. That's the big problem. And you know, really it's just, I don't know about you, Jason, but I've heard this thing so many times where we'll hear these great ideas and then you'll hear the stupid comeback of, well, America's just different. We won't, it, it won't work here with who we have in this country. <laughs> that really upsets you because it sounds like we're too stupid. Right. That. It's like, we're too stupid to have good things in this country. It makes me really upset. And speaking of too stupid and in line with our main segment tonight, we have more chaos over books. We got two stories for you. First, a library in Michigan has been defunded after refusing to censor LGBTQ authors, quote, we will not ban these books. I also included a very nice little flyer for you. Jason, do you see this amazingness of how well they put together? It is um, very nice. I just want to read a part of it. My eyes are immediately drawn to the weird watermarks. <laughs> 
there on the page. I don't know what that's for. But so this is so this flyer is by a group called Jamestown Conservatives, which is like a random local group they have there, and they distributed a flyer out to all these different people with this vote, saying, and I quote: "Recent changes at the Patmos Library have allowed for the purchase of many books with, and this is like all caps and bold, LGBTQ content and pornographic, sexually graphic material. Many of these books are designed to appeal to kids with content aimed at very young and impressionable kids." The library board admits to at least 94 books being available to patrons. The book Gender Queer, which actually, if you remember, Jason, this was one of the banned books yeah. that we've talked about in our other banned book segment, was discovered at the library. It has discovered it, like it, it wandered yeah. in. <laughs> It has extremely graphic sexual illustrations of two people of the same gender, all caps. Because that's the problem. It's not that <laughs> you have, it's a graphic novel. So it's not out of the question that there might be <laughs> depictions that are sexual in nature in a graphic novel. Lots of them have that. But the real problem okay, is the that same gender. two people of the same gender. That's followed up by an improper use of a semicolon that goes into, it is presented in a comic book format because they don't know what graphic novels right. are because they're old lunatics. The library director. <laughs> I don't understand that. Also, Cap, I think maybe Trump wrote this. No kidding. Insisted this book was purchased because it's award-winning in quotes. No, it, it's award-winning. You can- <laughs> What's going on? Both she and the Lakeland Library Cooperative Director defended the book. They also had displays such as LGBTQ Pride Month in the library in the young adults section and had a director who promoted the LGBTQ ideology and has hired staff of the same mindset. Not uh, bigots. Uh, and then just because I am doing my great bit of journalism for you guys, I also actually found the group on Facebook. They would not let me in. I was very sad. I just want to read their little bit of a bio for you. So this is them describing themselves on Facebook. This group was created to help others of the community to be aware of the pushed agenda of explicit sexual content that is being infiltrated into our local libraries aiming toward our children. I don't think that's how you use the word infiltrated it's being infiltrated into infiltrated. well you would say this is infiltrating our local libraries not being infiltrated into yeah, our local uh, they're stupid they're not smart. they hate libraries clearly. <laughs> i mean these are not english majors writing this we stand to keep our children safe and protect their purity as well as to keep the nuclear Ugh, family so intact creepy. as protect, god designed protect their purity it's so creepy Ew. and i like though in the what can you do section of the flyers one of the options is pray yeah <laughs> a little bit of good news is that after the story initially broke the library was actually able to raise a hundred thousand dollars when they're initially defunded by the local ballot initiative to defund 84 percent of their funding it was it was made to design to close the library yeah. and they had to go fund me a hundred thousand dollars to stay afloat that is the most american thing oh my god our libraries <laughs> are gonna have to be on kickstarter oh Going then to our second crazy story, a school district in Texas made headlines all over the nation for removing tons of books, including the Bible, in an Anne Frank adaptation. Uh, to be fair, the Bible has graphic depictions of sexuality. So there is... <laughs> they, right. So there is actually not too much to this story. The headline is probably the craziest part about it, but long story short, this school district had re, like redefined rules of how they're going to have kids check out books or look at books in their libraries. So what they had to do is then go back 
back. And actually, they have a website that I'll link in the show notes that shows every single challenged book and by who it was, what it was, what was the outcome of it in the previous year. And the new policy stated that they had to take all those books back, review them again under the new rules, and then see if they can put them out for the kids. But because the Anne Frank adaptation novel of her journal, as well as the Bible was also challenged by some parents, they had to remove all the Bibles and Anne Frank books from their school. As we talked about in our cancel culture episode, the real cancel culture is primarily being done by conservatives who are trying to stop the voices of anyone that does not fit their conservative values. But do you know what makes me lose my mind the most about this story, Jason, is that those same people who are trying to ban the books are now screaming persecution because they now ban the Bible. Yeah, I know. It, it's, it, that is the number one thing that conservatives and specifically Christian conservatives love to do. Right. Is proclaim how much they're being persecuted by the liberal media and the lefties and everyone who is mean to me at the store and everybody who flips me off when I drive by with my Confederate flag on my pickup truck. Well, and I saw so many of these stupid takes online from these conservatives influencers where basically, we always told you that they were going to take, that they were going to take the Bible out of school. (laughs) We always knew this was going to happen. We need to defend God and country. Like, you did it! This was your fault! It's literally just like when they shoot one of their own family members with their gun that they put in their house for protection. It's very much the same thing. They, They shot the bible with that gun that they brought in to the library all i can say is like every dystopian novel i have was wrong because in every dystopian novel the overlords the terrible people that are the villains of the story are at least like smart to some degree incompetent and aware that they're doing the bad thing we live in a dystopian world right now where literally our villains are too stupid to realize what they're even doing that they're even hurting themselves with their own dystopian bs it's like that british variety show bit the are we the baddies no kidding (laughs) the Nazi uniforms. People are crazy. Books are being banned. Libraries are being defunded. And we're going to talk about a story like that that hit right close to home. To our main segment. That was really a productive segment, wasn't it? It's hard to get any word in with this clown. So despite what Joe may tell you every episode, we're not actually recorded from Milwaukee. We record from a small city in Waukesha County called Muskego. It's where I live. It's where I've lived for about the last dozen or so years. And we, in, just, we just don't want to be associated with them. Right. We figure most people don't don't know what Muskego is. And if they did, maybe they would stop listening. <laughs> But the Muskego Norway School District, they have an educational services committee which reviews book recommendations from the different departments. Uh, and the English department recommended for 10th grade accelerated English class, When the Emperor Was Divine by Julie Otsuka. And that recommendation was pushed back to the committee pretty much without any explanation. The book is an Orange Prize nominee for fiction long list in 2003. It was written in 2002. It was an ALA Alex Award winner in 2003. Uh, that's the American Library Association. And a guy named Alex. <laughs> and it was. <laughs> just, it's just some dude named Alex that just comes out and gives you the word. Hi, I'm Alex. Here's the award. It was an Asian American Literary Award winner in 2003. And just this year in 2022, it won the Phoenix Award, which is uh, presented by the Children's Literature Association. 
Association. So clearly meant for kids and young adults. Right. It is. We'll talk about the book in a little bit, but it's a short book, 140 some pages, fairly breezy read. I think just about perfect for high school age kids. It tells the story of a nameless Japanese American family from Berkeley, California, that is sent to an internment camp in Utah for three years following the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941. As I said, the reasons given for the rejection of the book were very minimal. More has come out since then, but the process itself that this Educational Services Committee, which is part of the school board, the process that they use is pretty opaque. Well, tell me about this process, Jason. Well, we have notes that were taken at the June 13th meeting by an attendee. It's good to know that we were both doing due diligence where I was trying to join Facebook groups for crazy conservatives in Michigan, and you're actually (laughs) trying to find like your local school board meetings though. <laughs> I see I think one was a little bit more productive than the other. Uh, they indicate that some school board members were concerned that they had heard the book was chosen with the directive of choosing a non-white aka diverse <gasps> author and that is why they we were asking for the recommendation process to begin again. So uh, hold on. <laughs> pause. We need to pause here. Number 1, and I, I see your notes and you're going to say this too so I'll I'll just kind of say it. First of all, there's no evidence for this assertion. That's number one. That's crazy. And number two, I don't even care if that was the reason. I don't care if that was the most explicit thing in the word to say, hey, we need more non-white authors in our curriculum. And there is actually a state directive stating that schools should be picking more diverse viewpoints. Right. So, so oh my gosh, we have a diverse set of authors <laughs> that we read? No way. Right. They consider that to be discrimination because you can't just exclude white people. Well, that's what we even need. Even though there we is need- also like tons of where, white authors everywhere throughout the curriculum. Where is the white person's perspective of the Japanese internment camps? That's what we need in these <laughs> schools, man. Well, as you, you know, see, why, that is why, literally... You know, when we're when we're reading Night by Eli Weisel, why are we getting a perspective from one of the guards? Yep. All those, yeah, the Anne Frank diary. Where's the, yeah, yeah. the perspective from the German soldiers searching you know, all this, those houses? This really is a burden. Those we, sneaky Jews <laughs> always hiding from him. This really is a burden that the we white men must bear. <laughs> I, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> My God. The newest member of the school board, Laura, Lori, sorry, Lori Contney, being very careful with that last name, who ran on an anti-critical race theory platform. Oh, great. Stated that the recommendation couldn't be all about oppression. What? That is (laughs) what she said, according to the notes. What does that mean? Uh, that's what they... The recommendation couldn't be all, be all about oppression. Right. Like, uh, you, it can't be... She said it can't be all about oppression. As in, like, we just gotta stop worrying about this stuff, you guys. Right. All you want to talk about is... This stuff is bumming me out. oppressed in America. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what she's saying. Jesus. The school board president... Chris Buckmaster. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what a name. Chris Buckmaster. That is a Muskego name for sure. <laughs> oh my God. And Terry Bauer, a school board member who heads the Educational Services Committee, said they felt using the book would create a problem with balance. In part, balance. In part because the accelerated English class curriculum already includes a 10 page excerpt from Farewell to Manzanar, a nonfiction book about. About the internment camps. Oh man! So I already have a ten-page excerpt, and now you want oh, to have a man. whole book. Oh it. my god! <laughs> 
what is going How much Shakespeare did I have to read when I was in high school? What is going and on? And now we're worried about too much of one topic. What? Uh, Mr. That? Buckmaster <laughs> said that the sort of balanced perspective he had in mind I'm could, ready. could be found in a book like The Rape of Nanking, which details the violence the Japanese Imperial Army enacted upon China. So that's the what? balance to Japanese internment is... Oh, <laughs> The, the, the Japanese what? Imperial Army committed war crimes against yeah, China. so they're bad, too. Even though, like, again, he is doing the exact same thing what is that we did. In, <laughs> he's proving that we need to learn this lesson, that we haven't learned it, that oh, no. Japanese Americans are not Japan. They oh. didn't bomb Pearl Harbor, everybody. Oh, no. And he's making that same exact mistake again. Oh, my God. And saying, really, to show the other side, of the Japanese American citizens who were put in concentration camps because of the fear of the of the imperial right. of, or, so yeah. we need to show the other side of it and show that the Japanese army no. committed atrocities during World War II oh my and my favorite part and I know we're going to talk about the book that's literally it's a in the main theme yeah. of the book where the family's treated like dog shit because of how people see people from Japan and hear stories about what happens from the Japanese and they're treated terribly because of it, even though they are Americans. And people do bring up war crimes committed by the Japanese. They bring up Manchuria. So it is actually in the book. Yes. Anyway, so again, I I'm showing that a lot of these people did not even read this Oh book. no, that's so bad. Another school board member, Brett Hyde, suggested there could be reading material from another angle. What is that? <laughs> Such as something about the Pearl Harbor attack that would provide some history as to why the citizens of Japanese descent were viewed as a threat. <laughs> And what was the reasoning to have them put into oh internment camps? God. Yeah, we need kind of. Hey, we put those fuckers in those place, all right? They deserved it. Oh my god! So this is the vet. Wait, hang on. We we need to address the fact that this is like literally you were asking to get raped of like an entire block of people in our country. Because literally, it was just like, well, you know, they you should have seen how they were acting. I mean, if, did you see Pearl Harbor? We they kind of deserved it. That is insane. Yeah, and that is exactly what. But the mistake we made in 1942, and these people are showing us that they didn't learn anything from then until now, and highlighting the fact that, no, we really need to hammer this home onto the next generation so they don't turn out like their parents. Like our teachers. school boards! Exactly. I have a quote from Mr. Hyde. Oh, I'm scared. And, and his name is Mr. Hyde, so... <laughs> I do think the concern is out there that we want to make sure that we don't miss out on the American culture that we've grown up with. That's already, wait. <laughs> wait. <laughs> Noting that he didn't think classes should focus too much on certain parts of history. What? We shouldn't focus on it and have all that we're teaching are the mistakes that have been made in the past, again, by a culture that we have absolutely no right to judge based on our moral standards today. Oh my god! You know what also happened at that exact same time? Oh my god! The Holocaust! No, no. So he's saying literally that we cannot judge, judge the, Holocaust. the Holocaust based on our moral standards today. Oh no. The Muskego School Board, everybody. <laughs> 
Okay, Jason, you you recommended this topic for this week, <laughs> and then you told me we should read the book. And this has been going on for months. Right. This is not like a necessarily a news story, but you had the idea that we should actually dive into this book and we should read it. I got the book and I read it and I was ready. I unfortunately didn't have a lot of time to look up like what the story behind the book was. I thought you were going to take over for that, and you did. This was so much worse than I thought it was. <laughs> no, no, Jason, no. The Bible being banned in Texas was less interesting than what happened here why is this not national news no (laughs) now the good part there was a lot of parent and teacher backlash from the rejection that did turn into local news coverage a petition to reconsider the decision that was signed by over 300 people and a teach in slash protest at the next school board meeting i unfortunately i missed i didn't see that they were doing that it was on a monday and i i I saw it i saw this whole thing after it happened yeah like that wednesday oh man we should have totally went so i just missed oh that. i would have loved to go but there was also a facebook group that was created from the controversy the muskego community book club whose first book was when the emperor was divine so wait i, I just want to make this okay if you ever want to know what the difference is between the two sides right the liberals versus conservatives the progressives versus whatever i don't care democrats versus republicans we just talked about two separate facebook groups one was literally dedicated to defunding a library and the other one is having a book club those are your sides if everyone tries to tell you the sides are the same you need to bring this up saying one literally creates facebook groups to defund libraries who post lgbtq books and the other one is just having a book club my god and i did join this group the book club the first (laughs) meeting the meeting that i attended was on wednesday of this last week and they had another one actually today sunday the 21st this is the same book they split it up into two different dates i was working today so i couldn't go to to this one okay it was created by multiple parents and teachers uh in the area they're all very nice people they they all spoke at the meeting all wonderful got to see them all we were on zoom i don't i don't have a camera so i was mysteriously hidden because <laughs> uh, i don't have a laptop i use the desktop there was also a great introduction by ron kuramoto who's the president of the japanese american citizens league of wisconsin it's actually a group that's been around since before world war ii they're the longest i'm sure yeah running group that's fighting for japanese american civil rights ron gave a good background on japanese internment which is exactly what i had planned for this podcast as well and i was literally listening to him and what looked scrolling through my podcast notes it was just and making same. sure like okay yeah. yeah i got that part i got that or oh, I, i'm gonna have to talk about this thing i didn't think of that and and so hopefully i can come close to what he said in like 10 minutes across probably the next hour uh, of our podcast. They also had the 2022 Wisconsin Teacher of the Year, Cabby Hong, who was an English teacher from Verona High School. And those, uh, both Ron and Cabby were at the teach-in. So I'm glad I felt like I didn't really miss a ton after all, luckily. Oh, good. So that the hearing from both of them were was great. They both gave good introductions and background. We broke into smaller groups for discussion. Uh, and I had a, a really good time sharing my thoughts with uh, some of the other people that attended and, and some of the 
organizers. I just want to make something very clear for our listeners. Things have gotten so bad in this country. Jason went to a book club. <laughs> like I, <laughs> A social I, event, I cannot, is not my thing. I cannot imagine Jason ever going to a book club in my life. And the fact that he went and had a great time, wow. And I'll, <laughs> I'll be there next month, too. Our next book is The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. And anyone is welcome to attend. So any of our listeners that, that wants to be a part of it, again, the name of the group is the Muskego Community Book Club. That's pretty cool. That, that actually makes me very happy. That was something's happening. I'm a little sad that that's the silver lining that kind of came out of it as mm-hmm. of right now, but at least it's something. And hopefully because they asked for the, the review process on the book for that class to begin again, I'm hoping that they just recommend the same book again because it seemed like that was a possibility. Oh, that's good. So we'll see if I hear anything that comes out of that. I don't have any kids, so I'm not really that plugged into what's going on with the Muskego school board. But You're just I'll, a concerned to, citizen. I am a taxpayer, so I am a homeowner. I do pay <laughs> property taxes, so I do have a stake in, in what goes on. So I'll hey, try to, if Tim Michaels wins, that won't be a thing anymore, so you, <laughs> right. don't, you won't have to worry about that. Yeah, then uh, then that won't matter. Uh, but I, be, as a registered Democrat, I'll probably still have to pay anyway. <laughs> I'm not a. I don't even know. Is that a thing? No, we don't. Really. Well, I mean, you no. can give, you can be like a member of the Democrats. Yeah. But you're, you're not. No, that's all right. We don't. We don't have registered Democrats or Republicans <laughs> in the state. After recording this podcast, I'm sure I'll have to pay extra if Tim Michaels becomes governor of Wisconsin, uh. which hopefully he won't. He's behind in all the polls. So let's talk about this book. Yes. So let's give our thoughts. We don't want to give any spoilers or really give much away. We <coughs> want we want all of our listeners to go out and purchase When the Emperor Was Divine. It's on audiobook. It's on paperback. So I'm going to actually do my best to not give spoilers. I'm going to try talking about the themes of the book without giving too many details away. First thing, okay, there were two things I wanted to ask you. Number one, how did you like the book itself? Like just as a book to read or listen to? It was a an easy read. Yeah. It is not... And it's not designed to be a very, like, exciting, compelling read. It is not. It's very understated. It's very subtle in the way it tells the story. It's very measured. Yes. It doesn't. I'm, I tend to be, especially when it comes to these types of topics, is why we do this podcast. I tend to want to be very vocal and, uh, you know, get I get very upset over, over these topics. And the family in this book is the exact opposite. And that is, I think, traditionally uh, appropriate, you know, for the Japanese as a culture, they tend to be more reserved. You don't upset things. You don't make a fuss. So I think that was done the best. And again, I'm not going to give anything away in the opening of the book. I was not ready for the opening of that book, if that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. Where it, I think a lot of it just kind of focuses around the family itself. And the way you described was perfect because, so when I was reading it, I mentioned it before, but I had the idea of like Night by Eli Weisel, the one that everyone reads in school about the Holocaust and things like that. Did oh, you, did okay. You, no, did I didn't. I'm not familiar with You this, should but. read Night by Eli Weisel. <laughs> it is like the, the staple Holocaust book, man. So it had a very similar tone to that kind of where it just followed these characters along where they were getting uprooted. They you know were on the train going to the internment camp. They were in the internment camp. What's going on? And But because it had that same feel to it, I expected things to keep happening that were kind of like crazy over the top, you know? And like you said, that doesn't necessarily happen. Right. It, things happen around them. And I really actually, it took me until after the book was done to, for me to really appreciate it, uh, how subtle some of the things were. Mm-hmm. Because there are tons of times where they were focused on the kids, right? And the kids 
kids were talking about playing games or whatever they have on their minds at the time. And they just like skirt past something that just happened. And then you like just kind of talk about a little bit, whatever. And the book moves on. Like nothing happened. It creates a lot of tension. But that's the thing. You're just waiting for something really, the ball to drop, right? Mm -hmm. Like like you think like one of these like things are just going to go crazy. Like the whole place is going to explode or something like that. It just never happens because it's not unfortunate. I mean, well, no, it is fortunately not like how it was in Germany with the Holocaust. Things weren't as bad, obviously. Mm -hmm. But again, just the idea how they were focusing on things in the background where just crazy things were happening around them. But the characters were just kind of talking about whatever they were caring about. And you had to kind of like look past what the characters were actually talking about to see like how insane things were happening in the book. Right. And that's what I loved about it. And I I think it did make it more of a universal story for... I love that they were nameless. Japanese internment's not... I know it's not the right term because internment, you would have to be a non-citizen for internment to... But that's that's what the government called the camps. That's what the word that I learned my entire life was internment. They are much more accurately concentration camps because they were citizens. So yes, I, I apologize. I'll use those two terms interchangeably because nothing like really sensational happens beyond the fact that they were falsely imprisoned for no reason uh, by their own government. I think it makes the story more universal. I agree. It was very, the powerful part about this book was that it was very real to me. Yeah, the characters were all very relatable. Yeah. I think we spend a little bit more time with the, the boy character and they don't have names. And I like that they're not named. I think that's very well done that they're not named. And it took me, I think, a little bit more than halfway through the book before I realized that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think did confuse me a little bit at one point because I was just like, okay, uh, they're talking about a boy. What? Who's the boy that they're talking? And then I realized, like, no, that's it's that's the, it's that's the main character. The main character that we, I, he does not have a name, and it and it kind of took me out of it for a second. I had to go back, you know, a page and go wait. I, I thought we were talking about a different boy now this, for this last couple paragraphs, and it was the main. Well, character especially when you had time. kids talking to the other kids, so you had no <laughs> idea what was going on. Like, who's saying what? Oh my god. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I do remember that. Which part. I think is also interesting for a high school class to have that difference literarily. So that was my second question is then, okay, so we liked the book. I thought it was a very well done book. I would highly recommend to anybody, whether they're in school or not. The second question is literally, okay, so this was for a 10th grade accelerated class. So this is a sophomore level in high school. What do you think? Uh, Yeah, I think so, because <coughs> it's something that can be done easily in like a school week where if you, I think it's probably about two and a half hours three hours to read the book out loud obviously is going to take a little bit longer but across a week or two weeks of school doing it a half hour a day can easily get done and is something that you can discuss a lot there's a lot to take apart in this book there's the choice of them not having names there is the idea of the setting and how that contrasts with their kind of their personalities and and how they're emotionally reacting to things there is there's a lot that you can build upon here and there is um actually uh ron uh, kuramoto shared with the book club group there's a teacher's guide for the book that's you know it's already established they have a lot of that a lot of that work's already done well because it's 20 years old right that you can bring right into a class and also the idea that it was written in 2002 just after 9 11 yeah and the resentment of muslim americans kind of echoing this as well and then you can even bring it into some of the isolation that the character 
characters felt and quarantining during COVID. And so there's, I mean, I think it's really relevant and is a very good choice for a, a discussion in a classroom environment. I completely agree. And so this may be a little bit of a spoiler and if it's bad enough, we'll cut it, Jason. Um, but I think one thing that I wanted to hit home, I thought it was really well done. And of course it goes against whatever the dudes think about how it's all about oppression. I know that was Lori, right? Who was like, we focus too much on oppression. Yeah, it can't be all about oppression. So in the book, obviously they eventually get out because the war finishes and they're treated like garbage afterwards. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's based on kind of like what we talked about where soldiers came home and they were tortured as POWs and you had all these horrific villainous demonized ways of how the Japanese people were just pictured in media and that easily went right into how the citizens were treated. And I'm glad you brought 9-11 because I thought the exact same thing with that too where we a lot of people in this country and I mean I still do too a little bit but it really looking back on it kind of makes me have a more bleak outlook of what happened after 9-11 where we were supposed to have this big unifying time where everyone got together Democrat, Republican, Liberal, Conservative doesn't matter who you are black or white and we were all just Americans but that's not what happened we treated Arab Americans horribly in this country there were violence all around violent attacks going all around we had you know I mean we still we went all right into the Trump presidency where we had the Muslim ban I mean it's still happening today and I think having that depiction in the book of how they were treated because of these misinterpretations based on these stories that they're being told from these soldiers was extremely powerful and moving Mm -hmm. certainly reminds me too of our episode that we did on the Native American boarding schools yeah and I, I I truly I think students should learn about that type of stuff where it's not about because it's very easy to just say well we're not racist anymore it's very easy to say that we were racist back then but i'm not racist it's much harder to say the good chunk of your country's history just has terrible behavior and attitudes that create dangerous situations for people who are not liked throughout a large chunk of your country's history Mm. and you need to reconcile that and you can still have some kind of patriotism and love for country but you have to have an honest view of what's going on not this you know i always call it star spangled awesomeness or just nationalistic view of your country saying everything was great Mm -hmm. and i think we talked about this we didn't learn about this in school you know i talked to my girlfriend about it and i think i agree with her i didn't even learn about it until george takei started Mm -hmm. talking about it so with this came up during the book club now i always had some understanding of japanese concentration camps i'm not sure if it came from school or from outside um i kind of told the story that my dad was always a huge history channel guy and in my high school years the the mid 90s that was the history channel was the world war ii channel yeah it's not what it is now with aliens right and mermaids and all that stuff it it was world war ii all day every day it was kind of cool to be honest uh, i'm not sure if if that's where i learned or if i learned it in school or another thing i did think of it's hard to pick out if you're not watching for it but in the karate kid i don't know if you saw that movie from the yeah. 80s there You're is about to a blow my mind right now aren't you where mr miyagi is drunk Okay. And Daniel is trying to talk to him or understand what's going on. And Mr. Miyagi, he's got his army uniform on and there's a picture of his wife on the table and he's drinking and singing a song to her. And he shows Daniel a picture of her when she was pregnant uh, saying like, look, it's it's Yuki, my wife, and the first Miyagi waiting to be born in America. And Daniel stupidly asks like, well, what happened to her? You know, like uh, clearly, you know, Backstory. She's, 
story. She's not around anymore. But then Mr. Miyagi kind of stumbles into the background of the shot and he starts rambling. And he's, of course, he's playing drunk. And he starts talking about like, uh, yes, sir, reporting for duty, sir, kill many uh, kill many German krauts. And he also says, oh, we regret to inform you, your wife and child did not. And it's hard because it's very stuttered and hard to hear. But he, he says, your wife and child did not survive because there were no doctors in the camp. And then oh. he starts saying, like, you know, oh, home of the free and, and, and the brave, kind of like... Mockingly. Right. And and so it's definitely part of Mr. Miyagi's background that he his, wow. he was in the army during World War II, and at that same time, his pregnant wife died in an in, internment camp. In camp. Um, and that's kind of sets up the why he is where he is in his life, just working as like a handyman in some broke down uh, apartment building in California and why he takes on Daniel as like the surrogate son that he never had the chance to, to have. So that's something that I, I does kind of resonate with me that I, I feel like I knew that part, but it is very hard. You have to really watch for it. And also Pat Morita was in an internment camp as a child uh, as well. Wow. Now, I think if I remember correctly, there was also criticism from the board or from the whatever commission, I don't care what they are, about the book being too poetic. There was one person that said she didn't like it because it was too poetic. And there was too much poetry, which I don't understand. That I okay because no, I was going to ask no you. There's no poetry about, in the book. No, it, is it because she didn't think it was explicit enough? I I was legitimately confused by that statement. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, it was. There's too much poetry. I didn't like it. And again, it doesn't matter if you like it or not. That's not the point of having an assigned book. She's not a member of the English department. Like her liking it or not has no bearing on, right. on the choice of the book and yes it's too poetic or there's just too much poetry there's no poetry at all in the book the only thing that could be there's, considered there's too much there's too much poetry here it's it's the oh what, what are those japanese people doing it's, <laughs> it's that there are too many haikus, too many haikus. In, in the in the yeah. book the only thing that I think you could maybe really press it and consider a poem is the last chapter. Which was amazing. But I really like that. Right. And that's, I think a lot of people have a problem with that because it's the the only chapter that really goes against that whole, like, everything's fine. It can't be helped. Just move along kind of attitude that they have is the father who's clearly broken after his experiences. And he kind of lashes out in the final chapter, but it's still not to anyone. No. It's... But I think that's maybe the what they're concerned about because it was definitely against the country right i mean he shows some it's resentment. a lot of, I it's a lot of resentment which right. again it's very well done and sure yeah so maybe it's a little bit poetic but it's not that. like he's shouting on the street corner or you know it's it's all in an in internal dialogue i mean it was all about racism yeah it was literally about it, it's like finally you know like somebody said something about this right in this whole book i think it was necessary but it is a tonal shift but it's literally like two pages <laughs> it's not uh and, and i mean you could maybe consider the way that's written you might if you really twist my arm you might be able to consider that poetry i don't know i i but, wouldn't call it po- maybe it's because like, it's like a lot of like repeating lines like, yeah but it's not poetry but that i mean that's the only thing i could say that if you were just looking at the pages and not reading anything you might think that that's a poem see and my first thought was when i actually read that last chapter i would have been 
immediately want to lead a class and discussion about that chapter. Like that is a great like topic for a discussion, that chapter right there. Because it's very, it's not explicit, but the tone of it is very real and definitive, right? It, mm-hmm. It's the anger is there. And I would have loved to talk, especially to an like a very majority white or all white class about that chapter and get kids thinking about it. I, I don't remember if I told you this, Jason, but for a little while I was subbing when I was going to become a teacher, actually I was going to become an English teacher before I decided not to do it. And one of my favorite memories was actually teaching a middle school English class about racism and racial attitudes back in the 1950s during school integration periods. And now this was in seventh grade, okay? Mm-hmm. During like very you know tense times with a lot of people because we're in the middle of the Trump administration, those seventh graders could handle those t- types of discussions. It was an incredible discussion that we were having class after class, so much so that every kid loved it. And they were all civil. It was amazing. They were diving deep. They were thinking about it. And I made them answer the question about, okay, so it's racism is bad, but why? Why is what they did bad? What's going on here? What would happen if something did this to you? And they handled it extremely well. And I went to the next class and they did it extremely well. And they kept going and going. And it was fantastic. And it only got bad until I had a um, an assistant that came in for, I think it was a student with a, um, a disability. And I told her what we were doing in the class. And because she didn't like it, we didn't do it in my last hour. And shocker, the class sucked for the last hour. But if these seventh graders can take a class like that and talk about these racial issues with racism in our country's history in an honest perspective and not like hating the country, right? But just an honest look at what our country's history is. I am positive 10th grade accelerated English classes can do this very well and they'd be able to easily handle this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would spark actual discussion. So what I'd like to do is the book really does give a good as it's happening internal to one family day-to-day experience it's a perspective of what they went through like it starts basically with them going to the relocation center so what i want to do is kind of go over a more broad history of how we ended up in that position and and what the background was hopefully be pretty quickly i know we have almost a whole episode so far so i want to do it pretty quick but so you got a lot of notes here that you're i do well you go through a lot of notes real quick but let's try to uh just give a summary of what led to Japanese internment and and what the history of that was. Uh, Obviously, there was anti-Asian racism and discrimination before Pearl Harbor. It didn't start with Pearl Harbor. May 3rd, 1913, California enacted the Alien Land Law, barring Asian immigrants from owning land. California also tightened the law further in 1920 and 1923, barring the leasing of land and land ownership by American-born children of Asian immigrant parents or by corporations controlled by Asian immigrants. A lot of this is going to be California. California specifically is very anti-Asian immigrants. There are also a well, lot of- Because they had the most Asian immigrants. Yeah, that's they're the closest on the Pacific there. They had the biggest influx of those immigrants. A lot of other states followed suit. We have Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Idaho, Kansas, Louisiana, Missouri, Minnesota, Montana, New Mexico, Oregon, Texas, Utah, Washington, and Wyoming, which all enacted discriminatory laws restricting Asians' rights to hold land in those states. There was also a provision of the Immigration Act of 1924, which 
excluded Japanese immigration into the United States. This remained in effect until 1952. And why it's important, or at least relevant to this discussion, in 1920, 73% of the Japanese American community were born outside of the U.S. Uh, Issei is the Japanese word for like first generation. Uh, they were born in Japan and came to America. Well, by 1940, because there was no immigration allowed after 1924, that number had dropped to only 37%, meaning that two-thirds of the Japanese in these internment camps were natural-born citizens. They were Nisei, second generation, born in America, just as American as anyone else, natural-born citizens. Two-thirds still ended up right alongside their parents in the concentration camps. And this is despite a report called the Munson Report, which was an intelligence report that is literally spying on Japanese-American citizens previous to Pearl Harbor. It was filed by businessman Curtis B. Munson in the weeks prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor at the request of presidential envoy John Franklin Carter. It was based on firsthand research and consultation with Navy and Federal Bureau of Investigation agents. The report largely concluded that Japanese Americans presented no security risk. Carter passed these on to Franklin Roosevelt, adding, the essence of what Munson has to report is that to date, he has found no evidence which would indicate that there is danger of widespread anti-American activities among this population group. He feels that the Japanese are more in danger from the whites than the other way around. That still didn't matter, apparently. It didn't matter. There are some reports that Roosevelt didn't read it, or that Carter kind of made some generalities which caused confusion in his retelling of the report, mm. but either way, it didn't matter. Didn't do anything anyway. Right. And, of course, there was no... There's one act of sabotage by Japanese-American during World War II, and it was literally someone who was told they could not harvest their strawberry crop, that they had to report for internment immediately, and basically got angry and plowed in, or plowed over the strawberries, and that was considered an act of sabotage because the strawberries were needed for the war effort. <laughs> it was literally the only act of sabotage recorded. Rebellion. So what was the case for internment as one of the school board members asked for earlier? Well, the idea that Pearl Harbor was somehow aided by espionage and sabotage rather than purely military incompetence fueled further distrust of Japanese Americans, right? The Japanese couldn't have just bombed no, our yeah, fleet no and without us knowing there there had to be people in Hawaii working for them. This had to have been the act of Japanese saboteurs and spies. One third of the population of Hawaii is Japanese. Yeah. Uh, and they, they couldn't actually do uh, like the same mass incarceration in Hawaii that they did in the mainland because it's, it's just too much of the workforce and economy. Right. They still did of course steal a bunch of boats like fishing boats and stuff from people and you know anybody that they deemed too much of a threat they would they still did send back for internment but on the whole even though the hawaiian population is made up much more of japanese or those of japanese ancestry they they weren't subject to the same harsh confinement uh, that they were here and again no no problems like just like that reported said no issues the main 
person behind internments or confinements, whatever you want to say, is Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt. He was the commander of the Western Defense Command uh, in the U.S. Fourth Army. He had a history of prejudice against non-Caucasian Americans. Oh, that's a shocker. Even those already in the Army, uh, and he was easily swayed by any rumor of sabotage or imminent Japanese invasion. Obviously, after Pearl Harbor, everyone thought that the Japanese were going to attack the American mainland. There's the story of the weather balloon starting the battle for Los Angeles, which was just a stray weather balloon. Yeah. DeWitt was convinced that if he could control all civilian activity on the West Coast, he could prevent another Pearl Harbor. J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI ridiculed him uh, and the hysteria and lack of judgment of his military intelligence division, citing such incidents as a supposed power line sabotage, which was actually caused by cattle. Oh my God. So he's the person that eventually comes under control in this. Uh, there you have Executive Order 9066. Execute Order 9066. Uh, signed by Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt considered you know one of the most progressive presidents we've ever had. Yeah. Uh, and he is the president that is behind Japanese concentration camps. Cancel. Done. <laughs> He authorized the Secretary of War and designated military commanders, which is basically DeWitt, uh, to create military zones within the country that civilians could be excluded from. DeWitt issued multiple public proclamations. And this is the thing that I really wanted to highlight because we get in, in the book, we get the story of this family of them reading this flyer that was up, like telling them they had to report to uh, one of the assembly centers. Yeah. But it's it was way more confusing than that, honestly, leading up if you were someone that was of Japanese ancestry on the West Coast at the time, it had to be so confusing and just ridiculous. So I kind of want to give an overview of some of these public proclamations. Sure. The first one was issued on March 2nd, 1942, and it established military zones one and two, which included much of California, Oregon, and Washington, and also Western Arizona. Initially, it didn't single out the Japanese. It was targeted towards enemy aliens who were German, Italian, Japanese, or of Japanese ancestry, which that's, so not only non-citizens, which you've got non-citizens who are German, Italian, Japanese, but also Japanese American citizens. They're the only group that are included in that that are citizens. That's weird. And when they say Japanese ancestry, from what I could see, I saw some sources that said one-eighth, but I saw a lot of sources that said one-sixteenth as well. So, like, literally, if you have a great-great-grandparent, who's Japanese, you would be considered Japanese under this designation. Oh my god. I have a great-grandparent who is French-Canadian, so if we get at a war with uh, Quebec, I might have to go away to a camp. (laughs) Which, that's how ridiculous it is. Right. Like, just think of something that is that far back in your family tree, and think of, like, that you would consider to have so much loyalty to their country. Right. And not to the the country country you literally lived in your entire life. you were born in, that your parents were born in, like, it didn't matter. You're Japanese, because you, honestly it's because they can tell the difference and you know you really can't german and, and italian right just not white right not white much easier to to uh be racist against you so german italian japanese or of japanese ancestry were expected to voluntarily evacuate from zone one more than nine thousand people evacuated out of zone one most into eastern california which was in zone two and was not expected to be an excluded area okay one of the issues was that the 
the assets of those born in Japan, the Issei, were already frozen after the start of the war, making moving pretty much impossible for them, which it won't matter very shortly. They also, and from the book as well, the, the father was already gone at this point because a lot of the community leaders or people that held like more important positions who were Japanese and also German and Italian were basically rounded up early on in this process and sent to these camps before anyone else and really before a lot of these orders were in. Non-citizens were in any kind of prominent roles or were considered to be like disloyal to the country. There was an act in 1940 called the Smith Act, which made everyone over the age of 14 who was a non-citizen register. So they kind of used that act to grab a lot of these people, the information they had from that act, to grab a lot of these people early on. So people were being moved out pretty much throughout this process. Okay. There was public proclamation number two, uh, two weeks later on March 16th, which added Idaho, Montana, Nevada, and Utah as zones three through six. Public proclamation number three, a week later on March 24th, which created a curfew from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. and heavily restricted movements in zones one and two. So you couldn't be more than 10 miles from your home or your work. You were only expected to travel between your home and your work, and that was it. Yeah. Public proclamation number four, which came three days later on March 27th, declared that as of midnight on March 29th, all Japanese and Japanese Americans are prohibited from leaving zone one. Okay. So, so much for voluntary evacuation. If yeah. you hadn't left by now, you ain't leaving. And all the while, they're also issuing other like evacuation orders, right. sending people in different areas. There are over a hundred of them, so we're not going to get into all of those, but they're sending people to these assembly centers all throughout this process starting in March. But you're getting all these different orders coming Positive. every couple days telling you, you do this. No, no, do this. No, do this. No, now stay here. No, go. Well, no, no. imagine this is during the 1940s. So it's literally like, I mean, we, we can't go online with this. Right. Stuff, it's right? on the radio so or you it. see it posted like on the street corner. Right. And th- these read like, like laws. There's a lot of language that is not easy to read in here. So it's, it really would be very difficult. Public proclamation number five provided a list of exceptions from exclusion for Germans and Italians, but none for the Japanese. Okay. You can tell they're getting, as they're going, they're like really just more target. At first it was like, well, anybody who is on any of the access power, if you're German, Italian, or Japanese, and then as you go, it's just like, actually, no, we really just mean the Japanese. A bit later, public proclamation number sixth, which was on June 2nd, prohibits all Japanese from leaving California in zone two and sets the same curfew as zone one and states that all Japanese will be excluded from the California area of zone two in a future order. Basically just extending the order to include all of California. Yeah. Public proclamation number seven on June 8th is kind of the big one called for all Japanese and excluded zones to be removed to assembly centers. Again, through those other 108 orders, they were already moving them from those areas. Most people were already um, there. Right. Already in the process of evacuation or being forcibly removed 
at this point. So that means from the end of March to August, approximately 112,000 people were sent to assembly centers, often racetracks or fairgrounds where they waited and worked. And they were in like horse stalls. Yes. The most, and that is the experience of our family in the book where they waited and were tagged with numbers yep. uh, to indicate the location of a long-term relocation center concentration camp that would be their home for the rest of the war. Nearly, as we said, the, the numbers match what's what was in the census yep nearly seventy thousand of the evacuees were american citizens there were no charges of disloyalty against any of these citizens nor were there any vehicle by which they could appeal their loss of property and personal liberty and i did want to quickly just talk about the idea of justice versus vengeance because i think it's it's such an american cultural thing we have a vengeance-based justice system if it was just about safety and okay we can't have people that we considered to be security threats in this area of the west coast that might be vulnerable to attack just for military safety like it's unfounded and it's racist but if that was all it was was just we need to protect the west coast from potential saboteurs you would just tell people to leave right and they could go wherever they wanted you know outside of those zones and you might even say pay for it but it's not about that it's not about well they made them suffer Right. It's we have to get vengeance for Pearl Harbor. We have to take revenge. We have to punish them. And that idea, and it's even in the book, you have one of the American soldiers talks about the his the greatest thing he's ever seen is the atomic bomb exploding over, I think it was Nagasaki. Yeah. That idea of like just punishing and, and being vindictive towards those that you feel wrong to you. And that is exactly how the American justice system is set up. There's no rehabilitation. It's all punitive. It's all punishment. It's all designed to destroy people's lives. Yes, I completely agree with that. And I think, you you know, you see this here in the military. We see it in the justice system. We see it in a lot of people's attitudes. It's that is the American way more than I think anything else of what is America, what is culturally American. It's the idea of punishment and vengeance. And I just found that interesting. No, I mean, I, I completely agree, though, because. You know, when we talk about other different countries who are doing more reformation style of justice systems, or or even I remember in my book or in a book I was reading, Influence, where they're saying our individualist mentality and almost like a cult-like individualist mentality makes us prone to these types of attitudes and behaviors. So no, you are actually legitimately correct that we have, based on this individualist mentality of fairness and um, uh, Machiavellian, uh, we have a very Machiavellian style of dealing with other people. And it's just, it's very destructive. You know, we see that also in um, the dying of whiteness, which we'll probably talk about other times as well, where we will literally destroy our own community centers to make sure that we hurt other people. So, no, I think you're completely right. I think that's literally embedded into our culture. And for those going to the concentration camps, you could only take what you could carry with you. Everything else had to be sold, given away, or abandoned. It's estimated that those in prison ended up losing between two and five billion dollars worth of property alone that was adjusted to 2017 dollars according to the commission on the wartime relocation and internment of civilians and they clearly got reparations right they we'll get to that at the end there are <laughs> reparations uh which is one of the very very few times but it comes 
quite a bit too late for most people, unfortunately. And even though the justification, as, as we said, was to thwart espionage and sabotage, newborns, small children, the elderly, the infirm, children from orphanages, children adopted by American parents were not exempt from removal. As I said, anyone with one-sixteenth or more Japanese blood was included. In all, over 17,000 children under the age of 10. Jesus. 2,000 people over the age of 65 and 1,000 handicapped or infirm Japanese were, Japanese Americans were evacuated, put in concentration camps, again to punish them for Pearl Harbor. There were some legal challenges. Three Japanese Americans challenged the government's actions in courts. Minoru Yasui had volunteered for military service after Pearl Harbor and was rejected because of his Japanese ancestry. Uh, as an attorney, he deliberately violated the curfew law of his native Portland, Oregon, stating that citizens have the duty to challenge unconstitutional regulation. Gordon Hirabayashi, a student at the University of Washington, also deliberately violated the curfew for Japanese Americans and disregarded the evacuation orders, claiming that the government was violating his Fifth Amendment rights by restricting the freedom of uh, innocent Japanese Americans. I, I don't think you talked about that, but when we're talking about the curfews, mm-hmm. those are specifically for Japanese Americans. They were not like general curfews. Correct. correct. Yeah. Yeah. And those uh, those orders all pertained to the executive order uh, 9066. Right. Although there were some German and Italians in concentration camps as well. So I don't want to say that there that didn't exist. It did. It was just in much smaller numbers. It was also bad. I mean, they're still Americans. I, unless you have some evidence that they're spy. I mean, it's a thing. We have a legal system. We have a process by which people are charged with crimes. It's not just because we, of who we you are. We round them up and, right. yeah, man. Fred Korematsu, who eventually, by the way, would, would get the Medal of Freedom from Bill Clinton, changed his name, altered his facial features, and went into hiding. He was later arrested for remaining in a restricted area. In court, Korematsu claimed the government could not imprison a group of people based solely on their ancestry. All three lost their cases. Because, of course. Basically, the Supreme Court ruled that the Constitution doesn't matter in wartime. Fun. Yasui spent several months in jail and was then sent to the Minidoka Relocation Center. Hirabayashi spent time in jail and several months at a federal prison in Arizona. And Korematsu was sent to the Topaz Relocation Center. In all, there were 10 relocation centers and terminal camps, concentration camps, uh, whatever you want to call them, the Gila River and Austin camps in Arizona, Jerome and Rawer in Arkansas, Tule Lake and Manzanar in California, Renata in Colorado, Minidoka in Idaho, Topaz, which is where uh, the book takes place uh, in Utah, and Heart Mountain in Wyoming. Camps were surrounded with barbed wire fences and armed guard towers. They were told, oh, this is for your protection. Right. And, <laughs> but the, the guards were pointing inward not outward so that should tell you something uh housing buildings we're protecting you from your evil heritage (laughs) housing buildings were tar paper barracks with no insulation meals were eaten in large mess halls and restroom and shower facilities were also shared so it's basically prison for being japanese yeah basically uh and actually conditions were as far as like elements were actually worse in a lot of kids like being in prison in arizona with joe arpaio as your sheriff (laughs) 
any goods were purchased at cooperative stores or general stores that were on site, which drained what savings the detainees had when they came to those camps. So any money that you managed to keep in that process, you know, from selling everything you owned at bargain basement prices to people that were taking advantage of you, uh, then you gave back to the government to buy clothes and food. Because of course. Yep. Some were used as agricultural labor or worked within the camps. Which are, from what I could tell, pretty tough. Yes. And it's just like slave labor, essentially, as we love to do in this country. 1,862 people died in the internment camps. Oh my god. Uh, Many of the reasons included uh, because the camps were so crowded, infectious disease spread easily, uh, which again reminded me of the Native American boarding schools. Yeah. Uh, Diseases included typhoid fever, smallpox, whooping cough, flu, diphtheria, and tuberculosis. The camps could give vaccines to prevent some of these diseases like typhoid and smallpox, but not others. Oh my God. Bad sanitation caused outbreaks of food poisoning at many camps. I saw one of the... And I don't remember which camp it was, but one of the things when I was looking through all the history was literally the pipes that weren't insulated and weren't set up properly for the bathrooms and the showers were constantly breaking at this camp. And they, you know, they had the the people that lived, the the Japanese were forced to like constantly dig them up and repair them and then they would break again. At camps in the desert, there was so much dust that people with asthma and breathing problems, they became worse, which is again. Uh, something that we see in the book. I was say it's they're not necessarily like it's not the same thing as the ones that are like probably in Arizona or something like that. But we hear a lot about that with the the dust and debris making it very hard to breathe. Mm-hmm. And well, in the the book, it takes place the one in Utah. You have because of the the salt flats and the, yeah. the salt that's in the soil uh, certainly is a character in that book right. for sure. At camps in Arkansas, uh, people contracted malaria from the mosquitoes. Oh my god. <laughs> Oh, my God. So when did it end? On December 18th, 1944, when the Supreme Court was handing out that decision against... Fred Korematsu, which was a 6-3 decision upholding his conviction uh, for violating the military exclusion order, and stated that in general, the removal of Japanese Americans from the West Coast was constitutional. They issued an ex parte, which I don't know enough about legal terms. I haven't watched or listened to enough opening arguments. (laughs) Ex parte endo unanimously declared that same day that loyal citizens of the United States, regardless of cultural descent, could not be detained without cause. In effect, the two rulings held that while the eviction of American citizens in the name of military necessity was legal, their subsequent incarceration was not, thus paving the way for their release. They, uh, The Roosevelt administration was alerted to the court's decision, and because of that, they issued public proclamation number 21 the day before those two rulings were made public on December 17, 1944, rescinding the exclusion orders and declaring that Japanese-Americans could return to the West Coast the next month. That doesn't mean everyone was immediately released from the camps. Just meant literally if you were of Japanese descent and you were not being incarcerated currently, then you could move to those areas. Right. There 
Canada's victory over Japan Day, VJ Day, on September 2nd, 1945, where the actual surrender documents were signed aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. Nine of the ten camps were shut down by the end of 1945, some being used to house German POWs, which again shows you what the camps were really useful for. Right. They weren't being used for, like, hospitals <laughs> afterwards. No, they were prisons. Right, they were prisons. The last Japanese internment camp closed in March of 1946. Oh my goodness. Each released detainee was given $25 and a bus ticket, the same that was given to prisoners upon their release. Most were encouraged not to go back to the West Coast and were faced with housing and employment discrimination after internment. Which this, also we talk about in the book. Right, and this led to a big diaspora of Japanese Americans away from the West Coast yep. and uh, repopulating areas like Chicago and New York. Yep. But I will hear about these reparations. Repar- so, finally, we get to I reparations. Want, I want good news. Are there any, is there any good news? So the good news, we maybe realized this was a mistake. Maybe. In 1976, President Gerald Ford officially repealed Executive Order 9066. Yay. <laughs> In 1980, under the Carter administration, Congress established the Commission on Wartime Relocation and internment of civilians, the same commission that released that report of the amount of wealth that was taken or lost by detainees. Okay. On February 24th, 1983, the commission issued a report entitled Personal Justice Denied, condemning the incarceration as unjust and motivated by racism and xenophobic ideas rather than factual military necessity. Concentration See? Context. We need context for these things, Jason. Right. Right. We need to know why they why it was done as if it was n- necessary. Concentration camp survivors sued the federal government for 24 million in property loss but lost the case. However, the commission recommended that $20,000 in reparations be paid to those Japanese Americans who had suffered incarceration. Pretty much where we get the number that eventually we get to. Okay. On August 10th, 1988, President Ronald Reagan signed into law the Civil Liberties Act of 19 Bashing at progressiveness. Right, waited until the last year of his presidency, even though this commission filed a report in 1983 while he was also president, which officially apologized for the incarceration on behalf of the U.S. government and authorized a payment of $20,000 to each former detainee who was still alive when the act was passed, which that is bullshit. $20,000. My God. Totaling $1.2 billion. So that's like, it's not that it would be $1.2 billion. That's what they put as the cap. Right. On September 27th, 1992, the Civil Liberties Act Amendments of 1992 appropriated an additional $400 million to ensure that all remaining detainees received their $20,000 redressed payments. This was signed into law by George H.W. Bush. He issued another formal apology from the U.S. government on December 7th, 1991, on the 50th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack. So uh, literally... And as I said, read Korematsu. Yeah. I was also given the Medal of Freedom by Bill Clinton. Got it. So literally, I was born and alive in 1992 before some people actually got the reparations. Yes. 
And it was, so total $1.6 billion was oh paid God. out. And again, because it wasn't done until 1988, a lot of those people had already passed away. Well, right. And they specifically put in there that, you know, you, you couldn't go to your children or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, which, like, the wealth that they lost would have gone to their children. No kidding. So, again, it's... It's just like such trying, a weaseling way out. Of right. It. Like trying to not do enough all yeah. the time. Right. Yikes. So I hope that we addressed the story as best we could in the time that we had. That is the history of Japanese internment during World War II that the Muskego Norway school board does not want kids to learn because it will make them think that America is bad. Because it was. <laughs> because it did do bad things. But that's the thing. You can talk about all the history. You can talk about reparations and you can talk about, you know, multiple official apologies by the government. That's your cap for was this justified? Well, legally and officially, no. The government itself has said on multiple occasions that the internment, the concentration of Japanese American citizens was illegitimate and wrong and something that needed to be made right and even then they didn't do a good job at it and yeah they still tried to cheap out on it jeez because it's not defense spending uh well clearly jason we'll never do anything like that ever again <laughs> there will be no more racism it's in only the american government it's only the third time we did something like that i'm sure there won't be a fourth uh as I said before, this is a burden us white men must bear. <laughs> the knowledge of this. It's too much for my fragile I'm just, I'm whiteness. Too, I, I'm too guilty for being white, Jason. I can't <laughs> handle this anymore. The history is just hurting me from all over the place. Ugh. But to wrap this all up, in all seriousness, go read the book. Go read When the Emperor Was Divine. It's a fantastic read. It's a short read. We'll include the link in the show notes. And pay attention. I mean, we talked about it in the headlines and we talked about before your school board is probably really stupid statistically speaking right you should probably get more involved in your school board and see what they're actually doing because most of the time they're probably doing stupid crap like this get involved and make sure that people who actually know something gets on and controls what students learn in our public schools that's what we need to do and educate yourself on american history especially if someone tells you that this history is not something that we should be focused on probably means we really should take a closer look again we've said this many times before the point of learning this is not to feel guilty it doesn't help anyone if you feel guilty the point is to understand it to know why it was wrong and to make sure it never happens again so let's focus on the oppression part of our history a little bit more (laughs) shall we it needs to be all about oppression Thank you for listening. We hope to see you in the next episode. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at ThinkProPod. You can email us at ThinkProPod at gmail.com. And remember, when in doubt, think progressively. We didn't tell anyone to vote this time. Press record. Go, go.